Our Old Testament reading for today is found in Isaiah 58, verse 9. You can find it in Pew Bible 686. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The New Testament reading is in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. It's in your Pew Bible on page 1076 if you want to follow along. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. And the gospel reading is from John chapter 15, page 995 in the Bible in front of you. It is from the last two verses of the section called The Vine and the Branches. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear much fruit, fruit that will not die, and that you may ask the Father whatever you will in my name, and he will give it to you. This is my command. Love each other. send greetings to the Galatian churches. My authority for writing to you does not come from some popular vote of the people, nor does it come from the authority of some human higher up. It comes directly from Jesus the Messiah and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I'm God commissioned. So I greet you with the great words, grace and peace. We know the meaning of those words because Jesus Christ rescued us from this evil world we're in by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. God's plan is that we all experience that rescue. Glory, Glory to God forever. Amen. I can't believe your fickleness. How easily you've turned traitor to him who called you up by the grace of God by embracing a very good news. It is not just a minor variation, you know. It is an alien good news, a no good news, a lie about God. Those of you who are promoting this agitation among you are turning the good news of Christ on its head. Let me be blunt, if one of us, even if an angel from heaven, were to preach something other than what we preached originally, let him be cursed. I said it once, and I'll say it again. If anyone, regardless of their reputation or credentials, were to preach something other than what you had received originally, let him be cursed. Jesus gave the good news himself. Do you think I speak this boldly in order to manipulate crowds? Or curry favor with God? Or get popular applause? Trust me, if my goal here was popularity, I wouldn't bother being Christ's servant. Know this, and I am most emphatic about this, friends. This great good news that I deliver to you is not just human optimism. I didn't receive it through the traditions, and I wasn't taught it in some school. I got it straight from God, 
Receive the good news directly from Jesus Christ. Some of you may have heard the story of my earlier life, when I lived in the fundamentalist way. In those days, I went all out in persecuting God's church. I was systematically destroying it. I was so enthusiastic about the traditions of my ancestors that I advanced head and shoulders beyond my peers in my career. Even then, God had designs on me. Why, when I was still in my mother's womb, he called me and chose me out of sheer generosity. Now he has intervened and showed me his son so that I too might tell non-Adventists about him. Immediately after my calling, without consulting anyone around me, and without going up to the conference to confer with those who were apostles long before I was, I got away to Arabia. I later returned to Damascus, but it was three years before I returned to the conference to compare stories with Peter. I was there for only 15 days, but what days they were. Other than seeing our master's brother James, I saw no other apostles. I'm telling you the absolute truth in this. Then I began my ministry in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. After all that time and activity, I was still unknown by face among the Christian churches of Judea. There was only this report. That man who once persecuted us is now preaching the very good news he used to try to destroy. Their response was to recognize and worship God because of me. Chapter 2. Years later, I met church leaders in Jerusalem. No criticism of my good news was made. Fourteen years after that first visit, Barnabas and I went up to Jerusalem in order to confirm with them and took Titus with us. I went in order to confirm with them what had been revealed to me. At that time, I placed before them exactly what I was preaching to the non-Adventists. I did this in private with the leaders, those held in esteem with the church, so that our concern would not become a controversial public issue marred by ethnic tensions, exposing my years of work to denigration, and endangering my present ministry. Significantly, Titus, non-Adventist though he was, was not required to be circumcised. While we were in conference, we were infiltrated by a group of spies pretending to be Christians. They wanted to find out how free true Christians are, but their ulterior motive was to reduce us to their brand of slavery. We didn't give them the time of day. We were determined to preserve the truth of the good news for you. As for those who were considered important to the church, their reputation does not concern me. God is not impressed with mere appearances. And neither am I. And of course, these leaders were able to add nothing to the good news I had been preaching. It soon became evident that I had been entrusted with the same gospel to the non-Adventists as Peter had been preaching to the Adventists. Recognizing that my calling had been given by God, James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the church, shook hands with Barnabas and me, assigning us to continue our ministry to the non-Adventists while they continued to be responsible to ministry to the Adventists. The only additional thing they asked is that we remember the poor, and I was already eager to do that. I once had to defend the truth of good news against a church leader. Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with non-Adventists. But when that conservative group came from the conference, he put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Adventist friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Adventist clique pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, Barnabas was swept up in hypocrisy along with the Antioch church. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the good news, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, an Adventist, live like a non-Adventist when you are not being observed by the watchdogs from the conference, what right do you have to make a non-Adventist conform to Adventist customs just to make a favorable impression on your old conference cronies? We Adventists know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Adventist sinners. We know that we are not set right with God through keeping the law, but through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How do we know? 
We Adventists tried it. We had the best law-keeping system this world has ever seen. But we're now convinced that we can't please God through self-improvement. Instead, we need to put our trust and faith in Christ as the Messiah so we can be set right before God through the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan, a fraud. What happened was this. I tried working my head off in order to keep the rules and try and please God, but it didn't work. So I stopped being a lawman so I could become God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identify myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to the old rule-keeping, clear-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that. I refuse to repudiate God's grace. If a relationship with the living God could come about through law-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. You can remain seated, but we're going to sing the first and last verse of hymn number 304, Faith of Our Fathers. First and last verse. <clears throat> Chapter 3. What has happened to your life of faith? 
you dear idiots of Galatia. Has someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened here, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Christ in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was set before you plainly enough. Trust God, not your law-keeping. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your full heads off to impress God? Or by responding to his good news to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete through their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? It is not yet too late, friends, but it will be if you continue to go on this way. Trying to be made right by the law only brings perdity. Answer me this question. Does God, who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his spirit, working things in your lives that you could never do for yourself, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving? Or because you trust him to do them in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened with Abraham? He believed God, and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. Is it not obvious to you that those who put their trust in Abraham, rather than those who put their trust in the law, who put their trust in faith, are most like Abraham, they are the children of faith. It was all set out beforehand in scripture that God would set things right with the children of the non-Gentiles through faith, not by works. This was anticipated in the scripture promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed in you. So now you who live by faith are blessed along with Abraham who lived by faith. This is no new doctrine. And that means that anyone who tries to live up by his own effort, independent from God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. Christ has redeemed us from this self-defeating cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Haven't you heard the scripture that says, Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree? That is what happened when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. He became a curse, and at the same time dissolved the curse. Because of this, the air is cleared. And we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Adventists, too. We are all able to receive Christ's life, his spirit, in and with us by believing, just the way Abraham had received it. The law can't interfere with the original promise. Friends, let me give you an example from everyday affairs about the free life I'm talking of. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one can annul or add to it. Likewise, the promise was made to Abraham and to his descendant. You will observe in scripture, in the careful language of a legal document, that it does not say to descendants, referring to everyone in general, but to your descendant, singular, referring to Christ. This is the way I interpret this. A will, earlier ratified by God, is not annulled by an addendum attached 430 years later, thereby negating the promise of the will. No. This addendum, with its instructions and regulations, has nothing to do with the promised inheritance of the will. What is the point, then, of this law, this attached addendum? I'm getting there. It was a thoughtful addition to the original covenant promises made to Abraham. The purpose of the law was to keep sinful people in the way of salvation until Christ. The descendant? The descendant came, inheriting the promises and distributing them among us. This, this law was obviously not a first-hand encounter with God. It was arranged by angelic messengers through a middleman, Moses. And if there was a middleman as if there was at Mount Sinai, then we are not dealing directly with God, are we? 
The, but the original promise made to Abraham is the direct blessing from God, received by faith. If such is the case, is the law then an anti-promise? A negation of God's will for us? Not at all. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are, in ourselves, out of right relationship with God, and therefore to show us the futility of devising some religious system for getting by our own efforts what we can only get by waiting in faith for God to complete his promise. For if any kind of rule-keeping had the power to create life in us, we would have certainly gotten it by this time. By faith, we are rescued from the law and become sons of God. Until the time we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic Law. The law was like those Greek tutors, with whom you are familiar, who escort children to school to protect them from danger and distraction, making sure that the children will get to the place that they set out for. But now you have reached your destination. By faith in Christ, you have entered into a direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ wasn't just washing you up for a fresh start, but it was also getting you dressed for an adult faith wardrobe. Christ's life and God's original promise. You are now in Christ's family. In Christ's family, there can be no division between Adventist and non-Adventist, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, if you are Christ's family, then you are also Abraham's famous descendant. You are heirs to the covenant promise. Chapter 4 Let me show you the implications of this. As long as the heir is still a minor, he holds no advantage over the slave. Though legally he owns the entire inheritance, he's still subject to whatever tutors and administrators until whatever date his father is set for his emancipation. That is the way it is with us. When we were minors, we were just as slaves, ordered around by simple instructions. They were just as the tutors and administrators. We had no say in the conduct of our own lives. But if you are a child, then you are an heir, according to the covenant promise. When the time was right set by the Father, God sent his Son, born among us of a woman, born under the condition of the law, so as to redeem those of us kidnapped by the law. Thus, we have been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell that you have been fully adopted as God's own children because he sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain to you that you are not a slave, but a child? And if you are a child, then you are an heir. An heir with complete access to the inheritance. After all your progress, do you seriously want to go backwards? Earlier, before you knew God personally, you were slaves to so-called gods with nothing of the divine about them. And now that you know the real God, or rather since God knows you, how can you possibly continue to subject yourself to those paper tigers? That is exactly what you do when you let yourself be intimidated into scrupulously observing those traditions, taboos, and superstitions associated with those special holidays, seasons, and years. I am afraid that all my hard work among you has gone up in a puff of smoke. My dearest friends, what I would like for you to do is to try to put yourself in my shoes to the extent that I, when I was with you, put myself in yours. You were very sensitive and kind then. You did not come down on me personally. You are well aware that the reason I stopped to preach to you was that I was physically broken and forced to stop on my journey. You took me in, and that is how I came to preach to you. Do you not remember that even though taking a sick guest was most troublesome for you, you still decided to treat me as if I were an angel of God or Christ himself? What has happened to the satisfaction you felt at that time? There were some of you who, if you could have, would have even given me your own eyes. That is how deeply you cared about me. 
and now I've become your enemy simply by telling you the truth? I can't believe it. Those heretical law teachers go to great lengths to flatter you, but their motives are rotten. They want to remove you from the free rule of God's grace, making you depend on them solely for approval and direction, making them feel important and in control. It is a good thing to be ardent in doing good, but not only when I am in your presence. Can't you have the same concern for both my person and my good news when I'm away from you that you had when I was with you? Do you realize how I feel right now and will continue to feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your life? Like a mother in the pains of childbirth. Oh, how I wish I was able to be with you right now. Then I wouldn't be reduced to this blunt letter-writing language out of sheer frustration. Let's see, what does the law book have to say about this? Tell me honestly, you who have become so enamored with the law, have you paid close attention to that law? Abraham, remember, had two sons, one born of a free woman and one born of a slave. The one born from the slave woman was born out of human connivance. The one born to the free woman was born by God's promise. This illustrates what is going on now. The two births represent two ways of being in relationship with God. One, uh, this illustrates what is going on here in Jerusalem. A uh, slave's life producing slave's offspring. This is the way of Hagar. In contrast to that, there is an invisible Jerusalem, a free Jerusalem, and she is our mother. This is the way of Sarah. Remember what Isaiah wrote. Rejoice, women. Rejoice, barren women who bears no children. Shout and cry out, women with no birth pangs, for the children of the barren women now surpass the children of the chosen women. Isn't it clear, friends, that you, like Isaac, are children of promise? In the days of Hagar and Sarah, the son born out of faithless connivance, Ishmael, harassed the son, empowered by the spirit born out of the faithful promise, Isaac. Isn't it clear that the harassment you are now experiencing from the legalist corresponds with what is going on now in Jerusalem? Scripture tells us what we need to do with this. Expel the slave woman with her slave son, and the slave son will not inherit with the free son. Isn't that conclusive? We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. You may remain seated, but let's sing the first and last verse of hymn number 462, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, 462. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, oh, what a Goodness lost in his love. 
chapter 5. Don't lose your freedom by giving in to those who urge law-keeping to earn favor with God. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I am emphatic about this, friends. The minute any of you submits to circumcision or law-keeping to try to earn God's favor, at that same time, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. If any of you, any person, accepts the ways of circumcision or any other law-keeping system, at that same time, they trade Christ's hard-won gift of freedom for a slave's life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you fall out of grace. You're cut off from Christ. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a meaningful relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious regard of religion nor a disregard of it amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, far more deep. Faith acted out in love. You are running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you to the race in the first place. And please don't pass this off as insignificant. It only takes a small, minute amount of yeast in order to permeate the entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the Master has given me a confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upset in you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision, as I did in those pre-Damascus road days. That is patently absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I was preaching that old good news, no one would be bothered if I mentioned the cross every now and then. It'd be so watered down it wouldn't matter one way or the other. These agitators among you, as obsessed as they are with circumcision, why don't they just go ahead and go all the way and just castrate themselves? Good grief. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use that freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want and destroy that freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom actually grows. Everything we know about God's word can be summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out, or you will destroy each other. Where and will your precious freedom be then? The way to live in freedom is by the Spirit. My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit. For in this way, you will not feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in all of us that is at odds with the free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so that you can't just live one way some days and the other way other days, depending on how you feel every given morning. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit, and so escape the erratic compulsions of this law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. All-consuming and never-satisfied wants. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming and never-satisfied wants. A brutal temper. Stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. I, I could go, go on. on! This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you continue to live out your freedom in this way, you will not and you cannot inherit God's kingdom. 
But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives. Much in the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others. Exuberance about life. Serenity. We develop a willingness to follow through with things. A sense of compassion in the heart. And a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments. Not needing to force our way in life and being able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Law-keeping is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessity is killed off for good, crucified like Jesus. Since this is how we want to live, the life of the Spirit, let us not just hold this as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. And that means we won't compare ourselves to each other. As if one of us is better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. Chapter 6. Here are some practical advice. Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore them, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to the oppressed. Share in their burdens, and in so doing, complete Christ's law. If you think you're too good for this, you're badly deceived. Make careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given, and sink yourself into that. But don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Each of us must take responsibility and do the creative best we can in our own lives. Whatever gets your attention, gets you. Life is reaping and sowing. Be very sure now, those of you who have been trained into a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with the ones who have trained you, sharing every good thing that you have and experience. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring God, and ignoring the needs of others, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the person who plants in response to God, letting his spirit do a work of growth within him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not get fatigued in doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. So right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of others. Starting with those closest to us in a community of faith. And now, in the bold scrawls of my personal handwriting, I want to emphasize to you the immense importance of all of the things I have written to you. The ones who attempt to enforce law-keeping on you as a method of being okay with God have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good in front of others. They're only concerned about their egos. Lacking the courage to live by a faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. All their talk is just gas. They themselves don't even manage to keep the laws that they proclaim that they do. And they're highly selective in the laws they do observe. Only the ones they can measure others by. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast of their success in recruiting you to their side. That is just plain contemptible. I, for one, will only boast about the cross of our master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the tiny patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all this? It's not about what you or I do, whether we choose to submit to circumcision or we choose to reject it. 
It's about what God has done and is doing, creating something new, a free life. All who live by this standard are the true Israel of God, his chosen people. Peace and mercy on them. Quite honestly, I don't want to be bothered by these silly legalistic disputes anymore. I have far more important things to do. The serious living of this faith. I bear in my body scars from my service to Jesus. May what our Lord Jesus Christ gives freely be deeply and personally yours by his spirit. Amen. Amen.